welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk podcast, episode 22. Hello and welcome back to the next episode of the Production Talk podcast. It's amazing to have you on board again. Thank you for tuning in. I've had a busy week. I've completed an album lately, an additional single for another artist. And I've also been recently involved in the production of another podcast series where I just worked as a contractor for recording, editing, mixing. And this has also just gone live. So... I've been really busy the, in the last couple of weeks and uh, I finally had uh, a bit of downtime on the weekend. And uh, in all honesty, I probably need another day or two because today is Monday. I'm recording my podcast and I still feel a bit exhausted as things happen sometimes. And I'm sure that you uh, know how that feels and it happens to the best of us, I guess. So, um, but let me just steer back straight to to the subject uh, let's talk about music production and um, a subject that we put on the, the on the back burner uh, some time ago is mastering we touched it every once in a while but we've never gotten into more detail so today i would like to take the opportunity to answer a question that was posted online uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, a friend of mine uh, reached out and said is mastering a scam why can't we just make it louder so um, that is an interesting question. And then I thought about it and it's pretty obviously not a scam. I think we all know that. But then I thought about it, explaining why. And um, pretty quickly I realized that this is actually not simple to answer and therefore it's actually not a simple question at all. It's actually a very complex question. And I'll try my very best today to answer this question as good as I can and uh, I'll remind myself not to venture off into too much technical detail. Um, I hope you can forgive me if I do. So the first part, is mastering a scam? No, absolutely not. Mastering is an art form, uh, also a highly technical job that uh, has been around for many decades and has changed a lot over the decades. Uh, it's not snake oil. Uh, there is a lot of scientific and technical thinking to it. Uh, but in the end, it all comes down to how it sounds and how we perceive things and how we feel things. And therefore, I would say mastering is uh, one of the most mysterious elements of music production. That's definitely true. Um, at the same time, it's also the job that is reserved for the most skilled, most senior engineers. So if I had to draw a typical A career of a mastering engineer they often started uh, as let's say as a recording engineer uh, earlier on in their life uh, and it's not uncommon that they then had about 10 years of experience until they moved on to become only mixed on engineer and invested another 10 years into their career in this field and eventually then sort of graduated into the mastering world mastering definitely is not the kind of job that engineers start directly from from audio school uh, um, or start their career that way that's usually not the case because it just takes so much experience 
So what I should really point out here is that the question, as it was asked, suggests that all mastering engineers do is make things louder. Um, And that's definitely not the case. If it was that easy, then look, anybody could do it. But it, it definitely is not because the way they make it louder is is very well aligned with how musicians and listeners like music and for that there is no measurable scale for that there's no button that you could press that would do this straight away effectively what they do is they make it more likable more lovable and as as a side effect it also gets louder so i would say that um, if you look at the most experienced engineers, uh, mastering engineers, they often don't really approach a song with the uh, attempt of, okay, now I dedicate time to make it louder. That's not really on their mind. They try to make it better. They try to make it more detailed, more musical. They um, look at the tonal balance. They look at making it sound as good as possible on as many different playback systems as possible so that it translates well from big speakers to PAs to headphones to laptop speakers and that the essence of the song, the lovable elements still come through. And uh, I would say that as uh, along the way, the loudness of the music will increase as well. But it's literally not as simple as turning a volume pot up, unfortunately, because we are basically um, at the edge of clipping with most music today. And if we just turn things up uh, and things would start to clip, well, that is not... That, that's not what we want. That's definitely not the right thing to do. And that would make things a lot worse. So if the question is, can't we just turn it up and make it louder? Uh, actually, in all honesty, the of, often the, the answer is simply no, because technically we can't um, when mix files have maxed out the digital domain or the digital scale, I should say. And this is probably something that needs a bit more explaining. So um, in a previous episode, we already touched on bit depth and sample rate, but depth is is what we really need to focus on here. So what that means is that the volume or amplitude of an audio signal, a mix or an individual recording, doesn't matter for uh, in this context here, but uh, they all have a, a finite number range to express the amplitude. And this number range is rather large. So if you recorded, let's say, something at 16-bit, you would have about 65,000 and a few volume steps to uh, express how loud and quiet something gets. Um, that sounds like a big number, but um, actually uh, it's it's definitely needed. Um, I would say that in some situations we need better than this, and that's why I also recommend to record in 24-bit. 24-bit... Um, would then allow for uh, a resolution of about 16,777,000 and a few more uh, individual volume steps, which is a ridiculously large number. And it sounds like that's absolutely unnecessary. But in all honesty, it actually is. And there is an audible difference by having that. So just to quickly shine some light on the math behind it, um, we talk about 24-bit. Each bit can have the position 1 or 0. Uh, And we have 24 of those, and that gives us a number range or a range of possibilities of 2 to the power of 24, and hence 60,777,000 and a few. 
Good. Okay. So now that we've spoken about this, basically what happens if you just turn things up is we reach the clipping point. And the clipping point is when we run out of numbers. In other words, the the range from quiet to, to, to loud in our song literally has used up all of those 16 million uh, resolution steps and we try to make it louder and it has no more, no more place to go. In other words, we've used up all the numbers and the volume is, if you still try to increase the volume, it just doesn't get any louder. We reach the maximum and uh, for every sample it now repeats the same maximum and that manifests itself in a click or clip as we call it. So if you record your own music at home, I'm sure you you know how it sounds. It has happened to everybody, I'm sure, that we just turned something up and it clipped, so we had to turn it back down. So nobody likes the sound of clipping, and uh, that's the real problem here. Why can't they just make my master louder? That means that the the peaks, the the, the drum hits usually, uh, that stand out most, that consume most of the volume on your mix, that they already reach the maximum point pretty quickly. And from this moment on, you can't just turn it up anymore. Instead, you need to um, use other methods to per to change the perceived loudness. And uh, that's a tricky thing. So a simple fader move upwards or a button that we could press that adds 60 dBs simply doesn't work anymore because the side effects of that would be uh, clipping. Let me just have some tea for a second. Excuse me. So, um, what mastering engineers do as part of their art is apply dynamic range reduction or dynamic range compression. So, dynamic range, just to clarify this for everybody, is the difference between loud and quiet. So, if we think about orchestral music, for example, um, we can expect fairly significant dynamic ranges. Because if an orchestra, orchestra gets really loud, oh my god, it gets loud. However, if they get quiet... It gets also really quiet, which makes the dynamic impact. And that's why watching an orchestra live is quite a phenomenal experience. If we then think about uh, other music, for example, um, let me just think about you use your keyboard to play some pad sounds. Um, if, you, if you just play a couple of pad chords for a while, you've noticed that the volume of those usually just wavers around the same pocket and doesn't move much. We can also talk about music genres, uh, let's say EDM or some metal genres that are basically with a very low, that, that have a very low dynamic range. Means there's very little difference between loud and quiet. Um, in other words, literally everything is loud. But the problem with music is that if you make everything loud, well, it can get fatiguing to the ear. So to the listener, it might just, yeah, subconsciously make them turn it off after a while if it's just too much. Um, and it also takes the interest away because the problem is, you know, if you've ever listened, or sorry, if you've ever read a text in full caps, that's a little bit annoying this is actually not my analogy. I picked this up somewhere on the internet. But um, it's the same phenomenon. If everything is loud or in caps, uh, eventually nothing has impact anymore because the contrast is no longer there. So from a mixing and also mastering perspective, and I would actually extend this and say even from a music production and songwriting angle, 
It is a good idea to consider those things and plan a song or arrange a song so that there is a certain room for impact. So if you make everything, if you start with the intro at full volume, you've got no more place to go. Nothing can be louder than that. So sometimes it's a wise idea to just turn it back down for a moment so that the next element can be more impactful. That's a very important songwriting technique and music production technique that carries itself on in mixing and mastering as well. And effectively in mastering, that's the last chance for anybody to yeah, do something with this and improve it somehow. And um, uh, that's when the final balance is basically laid. So what you basically do when you hire a mastering engineer is that you get the final quality control sorted. And ideally you basically... Yeah, hopefully you'll find a mastering engineer that you dearly trust. That should be somebody who's much more experienced than you. And um, yeah, what you will get is the certainty that somebody with a lot of experience and very, very high resolution speaker system looked over everything one more time and make sure everything is fine. It's the peace of mind that you get from mastering that this is now at the very best it can possibly be. That's basically the magic um, mastering engineers bring to the table. But uh, I think I'd like to steer back one more time to, to the concept of dynamic range um, because dynamic range is, is a funny thing where I basically would go as far as saying that every genre and even within each genre, every song uh, may require their own dynamic range. And by dynamic range, let me go a bit more technical, I would say that's the difference between the peak of the signal or the loudest transient and the overall loudness of the song that's often known as RMS or also in more modern technical terms LUFS. Those units measure uh, the loudness of a signal. So just to demonstrate what, what can go on, imagine for example um, you record uh, a snare drum. If you just have if you look at a snare drum channel and, uh, you know, just assume a normal backbeat performance, chances are that you would find, you know, very loud snare hits. They sit usually up in the mix, so they're often fairly loud. However, the space in between is very quiet. So if we were to average this, average or root mean square RMS, that's the same uh, mathematical concept uh, in, in simple terms. If you were to average this, uh, the loudness wouldn't be actually very high because there's a lot of uh, quiet area in between. So uh, in order to make up, the snare needs to actually be louder on the onset when, when the snare drum or when the drumstick hits the, the skin. That's the attack of the snare and that's also what we call a transient. So in order for drums to... Uh, to sound powerful and energetic, they need a bit of room uh, above everything else for for the short transients to stand out and um, yeah so therefore if you think about uh, a mix for example if you had you no know, really full-on synthesizers or distorted guitars or let's say you know, a woolly organ sound all of those uh, signals usually have a very high loudness but very little uh, peak value so there's no transients involved in other words they don't need a, a headroom to make mix space for transients. So if, if those are mixed too loud to start with, then there's just not enough room for the transients to, to do what they need to do above. And you might hit the ceiling, the clipping point. And um, yeah, that's definitely not something we want to do. So what we generally do in recording 
in music production and also in mixing is to gain stage our signals sufficiently so that we have enough space for, for the transients to do what they just want to do. In other words, a mix should not be very loud yet because the overall volume pocket you know, is therefore a bit quieter compared to most masters, but there is definitely some transient motion above. You know, there's headroom for the, uh, the kicks and snares and percussions to do what they want to do best. Good. Um, so... I guess that also explains why when mixing, we should never focus on how loud it is compared to other things. A mix naturally sounds a little bit quieter because in, in, uh, quieter in comparison to finished and produced and mastered music, I have to say. And that's because um, the music or the mix is probably still a bit more dynamic and needs more headroom for the transients. And that's where mastering engineers come in and their job is to... Yeah, reduce the dynamic range very carefully and very skillfully while maintaining the integrity of the music. And the tools they use for that are commonly known as compressors, limiters, and probably a range of other tools as well, but those are the most common ones. They also use equalizers and situation and things like this, but let's focus on tools that reduce dynamic range for now. So, Chances are, if you've ever started your own mix, uh, you probably get a rough idea of what a compressor is. A compressor uh, basically makes loud signals above a certain threshold quieter, thus reducing the dynamic range, the, the difference between loud and quiet, getting those things closer together. So here's the problem with compression. Compression is a tool just like, uh, I don't know, a chisel or a hammer or any other tool. And it's only as good as the craftsmanship behind it. So what I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter as much what you use, but instead how you use it and how carefully you listen when using that. And here's the problem with those uh, compressors. They take an awful long time to really learn. So if I think about my own learning curve... Um, Starting in the late 90s, uh, I learned the parameters quickly. That it wasn't too hard to wrap my head around it. Um, and I also started to use them um, in mixes. But if I listen to those mixes today, I have to admit that I didn't fully understand what I was doing. Nowadays, I see all the mistakes I did back then, uh, where I, for example, had an attack time too short on a, on a snare drum and, you know, things that I would definitely do um, a lot more carefully these days. So I guess that's probably also my sense of taste. You know, I have changed as a human being, so the way I perceive things and I want them to sound today is definitely different as well. But in all honesty, um, over the years of producing, I had several breakthroughs in my compression techniques where something really started to sink in and make deep sense, even years into my career. And it's now been about 20-something years for me, and I'm pretty sure that I still haven't learned everything there is to know about compression. And hopefully, I will still um, come across an epiphany here or there where I still learn some more about it. So it's actually an art form to use them very, very carefully and, and skillfully. And then we also need to look at the signal flow for mix and um, distinguish at which stage we compress and limit. Um, because I would say that if you go to an individual source, let's say a shaker, a hi-hat, um, an 808 or a vocal, doesn't really matter. 
if you go to an individual signal and compress it, um, the potential for error or for damage, let me phrase it that way, potential for damage is, well, not quite as complex as further downstream. So compressing a kick drum or a bass is easier than to compress, let's say, a drum submix or... Um, an entire string section, or eventually a full mix. I would even go as far as going on the record here in stating that the more complex the signal you compress, the more delicate it becomes and the easier it is to make mistakes. So compressing a kick drum, no big deal. Uh, most people would get, get this right. However, compressing an entire drum set as a submix is something that requires a lot more knowledge and skill because there's also a lot more potential for, um, for the compressor to misbehave and therefore takes more skill to get the signal through the compressor coming out the other end actually sounding better. And then if we go further downstream to the entire mix, to process an entire mix flawlessly and inaudibly, that takes some serious engineering and serious artistic skills to get that right. And um, the potential for error here is very high. I would say that when it comes to compressing or maybe limiting um, a mix in the mastering stage, I like to describe it as, you know, there are probably a thousand ways to do it maybe more, and I guess 980 of them all sound bad. There's very few ways to do it actually better. And a mastering engineer is the person who has got the skill to do this very, very well and flawlessly without negative side effects. Because, well, hopefully without ne negative side effects. So if we take a mix that hasn't been compressed much at all, uh, but is great sounding a mix, if you start compressing it for the first couple of dBs of compression, chances are it will get louder and as such more detailed and probably better in every regard. At the same time as you increase the compression, uh, you also start to buy yourself some, some negative side effects. And I would say that for the first dB and a half of gain reduction, chances are the pros really outweigh the cons if done skillfully. But for every additional dB, the more uh, you squash and compress your music together, the more potential there is for the compressors to also cause damage. And uh, that takes a very skilled very experienced engineer to navigate through without hitting you know a, a wall of distortion on one end or pumping on the other end or so there's always a lot of things that can go wrong that as an inexperienced user we may not even be aware of but mastering engineers definitely are and experienced engineers definitely are so it's a smart idea to trust those people with what they do um good i would also say that each song has its own loudness potential. By loudness, I refer again to you know, the amount of compression applied and how loud the song eventually gets. And the sweet spot for each song may be a little bit different. So one song can handle a lot of compression or a bit of compression really well and sounds really nice, but the next song might be very difficult and might be very temperamental in responding to compression and uh, no, negative side effects may come really quickly. And a mastering engineer will basically look at not just one song most of the time, but usually at an EP or album, 
a little note for all the listeners. If you want to release your music as an EP or album, give all the songs at the same time to the mastering engineer and let him know. You can't, you can't do this uh, as individual singles and then expect that as at the end of it, they all sound like a finished album. Actually, that's one of the core workflows or core tasks of, of a mastering engineer to take a collection of mixes that all sound slightly different and make them sound as if they belong together on the same album. The same tonal qualities, the same same beauty and nicely leveled against one another. So there's a lot of um, yeah attention to detail that needs to be put in here. Good. Okay. So um, yeah, back to the actual question. Mastering is definitely not a scam. The art of mastering is a several decades old. It started in the old days when mastering engineers were transfer engineers and their sole job was to uh, take a recording from, let's say, magnetic tape and get it onto vinyl or even before that, wax cylinders and so on. So the transfer had to be made from one medium to another. While then later in about the 70s, um, that's when it actually started with uh, processing, when mastering engineers started to, you know, uh, apply a bit of, of uh, processes to make things sound uh, actually better. So that's a fairly recent, well, not that recent, about 50-year-old development in the mastering uh, history. But there was definitely a, a long time before where mastering engineers didn't do any of that. Good. Let's just keep talking about this for a moment. So when the CD came up, a lot of old vinyl records uh, were transferred onto CD, hopefully from the original master tapes is always the better way than to stream it or grab it off a CD. Um, and when these recordings were put onto a CD, things changed a little bit technically because previously in with tape and, and vinyl records, what set the li limit um, for, for loudness on, uh, on the medium was usually the, the chunky bit, the RMS, the loudness. The transients that stack out of it weren't usually a, a problem. There was enough space for that, and that just wasn't the limit, but it was just the over-loudness that was the limit. When we moved into digital with CDs, it was the opposite. So uh, a CD sounded equally good, so to speak, almost across the entire dynamic range until you hit the clipping point. And that's when it immediately turned sour and distorted. So when people first transferred their master tapes to a CD, they realized, okay, um, it's now nicely aligned. It comes out exactly as it went in. However, the transients actually didn't quite reach the absolute maximum. And that was a time when mastering engineers could literally just do one thing, bring up the fader and make it louder for a couple more dBs to chew up the remaining headroom. That basically was the best way of, of mastering a record because it had literally absolutely no, it had no side effects, no compression involved, it just turned it up. But then we hit the clipping point. So well, we couldn't turn it up any further. There was a limit to it. And then as things progressed in the 80s and 90s, um, people then realized that they could actually get a little bit more volume out of it by just applying some processing and shaving off uh, the transients. Um, and that's when limiting came into play. This unfortunately set off a complete madness feeding frenzy. 
um, which we today know as the loudness war and often refer to those t times as the dark ages of music production. And it all went around the following lines that um, artists walked up to the mastering engineer and said, look, um, that band just released a record. It was really nice and loud. So can you make our records just as loud and just a little bit louder? Just a little bit. And so they did. And they became the loudest. So the next band listened to them and said, oh, wow, they are loud. So can we also be that loud and maybe just a bit louder? And that kicked off what we know as the loudness wars or loudness race. And I would say that the loudness wars definitely dominated uh, the sound of the 90s, especially in the late 90s. The 2000s uh, got really, really crazy. And in the early 2010s, um, the wave literally hit the pier. We hit a point where it couldn't get any louder anymore. It could only ever get more distorted, in all honesty. Uh, at that time, a lot of damage had been done by uh, collective madness, I would say. However, ever since um, the yeah, well, early 2010s, um, there's been a lot of motion in the industry, a lot of movement for more dynamic range, to re-establish dynamic range. And what we've seen since is that this wave has, has hit the pier and it's now rolling backwards. So... Um, Last week, I think, uh, if you listened in, I had a lot of critical things to say about streaming services. Let me go on the record today with praising them for establishing loudness standards. Because those loudness standards, as they are in place today and progressed over the last 10 years, were actually the tipping stone that uh, made the wave roll back and that introduced more dynamic music Back to the listener, which is a great thing for everybody because it just sounds so much better. So just to explain this loudness madness um, one more time. So there's a certain psychological phenomenon. If I play a piece of music to you and then play another copy of the same music to you again and ask you to pick the one you like better, um, chances are you would always pick the one that's louder. So all I need to do is just turn the same copy um, or a copy of a piece of music up by one dB. Even half a dB works reliably. And in a blind test, everybody will pick the louder one as the better one. Um, this is not an effect that only works on members of the public, but it can also be uh, reliably applied to professionals like myself. You could fool me the same way uh, obviously it doesn't make it sound any better just because it's louder but it's just a certain perception that is built into our human brains so as a general rule as you produce if you compare two pieces two different guitar amps two different microphones whatever two different synth synthesizers never jump to conclusion until you first balance out volume differences that way you make better decisions actually based on sound quality, not loudness. So everybody is subject to, to this phenomenon that we always like the louder thing better. And so are record company owners and A&Rs and people like that. So it was assumed that in order to get a music deal, one would first have to impress the A&Rs. And the best way to do that is with just high loudness so that Once they turn a song on, it blows their socks off straight away. That is generally a good idea. However, 
if that's achieved by hyper-compressing music, it has so many negative side effects that this really outweighs any imaginary advantage one may have. So the idea is that apparently louder music sells better, and that has been proven wrong again, 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 and again. Because what everybody here in the equation so far completely ignored is that you as the listener at home, you've got a volume dial. Maybe the buttons on your iPhone, whatever this may be, but you can control volume. And if something comes on that you like and it's too quiet, chances are you're going to turn it up. And if something else comes on that is too loud and you don't like it, chances are you'll just naturally turn it down. So everybody who tortured music with hypercompression during the loudness wars always assumed that this volume increase now carries through to the listener. But they will just turn it down if they don't like it. So that's a bit of a conundrum. And I would say that large proportions of the music industry completely fell for collective madness here and chased an imaginary goal that actually didn't make much of a difference in real life. So if you want to impress an A&R, still blow their socks off with the first few chords, but don't do it by hyper-processing your music. Do it by playing your instruments ridiculously beautifully well. So if you, if you start off very, very loud, at some stage, just let it go for a moment and let it build up again. So if, every, if music is always loud without any interruption, I personally find it very boring and there's very few examples of songs that are constantly loud that I personally enjoy. Most of the music that I enjoy from almost any genre is music that has a bit of light and shade and loud and quiet and, you know, I call this the intensity curve. That's the, the journey that the music takes you on. And if that's only ever loud, I get bored of it pretty quickly. So be loud if you want to, but also be quiet. And it's the contrast that really makes all the difference. And if you produce, if you write your music like this, it will also mix much better and the master will come out really, really beautifully. At least that's my experience. So luckily, the loudness wars are over. Um, definitely they are. There are still some old blockheads in the industry who um, are somewhat stuck in the old way of thinking. But look, that's just human nature. There is no more advantage to be gained for making music particularly loud these days. Because the way streaming services work is that they introduce loudness normalization. In other words, if we put two songs side by side, one with strong transients and more dynamic range, and therefore a quieter uh, overall loudness, put right next to a song that has been hyper-processed and is really, really strongly compressed and limited, where there's very little movement between loud and quiet anymore. And now that we are in a world where most of the music comes from streaming services, they get control over this and they make it easier or make it better for the listener by balancing out volume differences. So the same two songs, the dynamic and the compressed one, put neck to neck on streaming services, would basically trigger the second song to be turned down so that when you listen across both of them, the listening volume on your end is more consistent. And that means the louder song has been turned down, which now means there's several dBs, maybe one or two, maybe eight, who knows? Hopefully not eight. But there's a couple of dBs of unused headroom now 
And that's fine because the advantage is that the listener, and that's you and I, everybody, now hear two different songs at about the same volume. And that is fantastic. I love that. So it basically means we are now liberated. We don't need to squash the music in mixing and mastering as much as we used to. We can allow for more dynamic range. And uh, if we want to, if we, let's say, produce a black metal song or an EDM banger or something like this, we can aesthetically go for high compression rates, and that's perfectly fine. But just be aware it will be turned down. So if you if you do this, go for it. and But do it for the right reasons. Don't do it to achieve loudness. Do it for tonal reasons. Make, make the music glue together better. And that's... That's, I believe, how, how compression should be used these days. So loudness, um, normalization has received a little bit of criticism in the past, especially from the people who um, became very good at hyper-compressing uh, mixes and masters, overcooking them, in my opinion. Um, those were the people who were a little bit disgruntled because you now once the volume was turned down, well, the loudness advantage vanished, but all the negative side effects that came with hypercompression, they remain. They always remain. And that's a problem that I have with many, many masters and mixes coming out of the 2010s. There's exceptions, of course, but, you know, Metallica have um, received some fame over uh, the entire fan base criticizing them for their sound based around too high loudness. There's one example where it really backfired on them. So rest assured that today all you need to do is to produce your music so that it sounds good and has a little bit of headroom. And if you give it to a good mastering engineer, they will sort it out from there and probably just do whatever is right by the piece of music, hopefully. And once it's then played back on streaming services, it will just integrate beautifully. I even find that songs that are produced more dynamically even perform better. They sound better after loudness normalization, where the hyper-compressed uh, sausages, as some people call them, um, often start to sound a little bit weak, wimpy, and soft, or quite often distorted. So less pleasing. So the punchier songs are often the more dynamic ones, in my personal opinion. Good. I know that there is still a little bit of controversy about it, so some people may not strongly disagree. Um, if you want to take uh, this argument to my doorstep, you are absolutely welcome. Uh, I would love to talk to you about that um, in a nice manner, of course. You can find me on Facebook. It's uh, the Production Talk podcast community. It's the official Facebook group. Um, please click uh, there and I'll let you in and then we have a discussion there. Um, if you think um, that I missed something, if you think that there's something more to say, I would love to hear from you about the subject of mastering. So how do you find a good mastering engineer? What are the pros and cons here? How do you work out who to work with? So here's my idea. Instead of giving your album to um, one mastering engineer and hope for the best, because there are rotten apples around, like in any other industry, people who do not live up to their promises. Um, instead, look at the most influential records of your genre. Who are your heroes? Check their records and read the credits and check out which mastering houses they were using. Why don't you reach out to those people and ask for a quote? And if you're not sure which way to go, um, another thing you can do is just 
decide for one song first and invest a little bit of money by giving the same song to let's say two or maybe even three different mastering engineers and see what you get back and then listen to them purely on an emotional level meaning balance out any volume differences put them into a blind test ideally so you don't know which one is playing and just judge by your heart which song makes you happiest and that's the mastering engineer for you i reckon um, but just before i finish let me just add one last can of worms it's the can of worms of automated mastering services um, you may have heard that there is quite a few different services around that allow you to upload a mix and seconds later you get a master back let me be perfectly clear this master has not been done by a human instead it has been done by an algorithm. So it was uploaded, sort of scanned for you know whatever content there may be, and then automatically something has been applied and is then returned to you. I definitely believe that the algorithms are getting better every day. And at some stage, this may lead to good sounding masters. So far, and I like to go on the record here, it's almost 2022, I have tried quite a few and not one of them was up to my expectations. Every single time I feel that I could do a better job mastering it and I'm not even considering myself a mastering engineer. I call myself a mix engineer because mastering is not my day-to-day -day profession. But still, I feel like I can outmaster every single one of them if I wanted to. So now think about what a specialized mastering engineer can do for your music. Somebody who does nothing else but mastering day in and day out and who's very experienced. So, on this note, be careful with those automated mastering services. Um, for a demo, it might be fine, but for a release, for an official release, just consider that whatever you release there is there to stay forever. And uh, I've listened to a lot of music on streaming platforms where huge mistakes were made and in the production, mixing and mastering. And that's always sad because, you know, that's now something that people have to live with forever, unless they, of course, pull it. But I think, you know, if you release your music, put it in the right hands, find yourself a mastering engineer that you can trust and then work with them. Good. Obviously, there's plenty more to say about mastering. I barely touched the surface. Um, at some stage uh, in the future, I hope to actually speak to a mastering engineer, a professional mastering engineer on this podcast. If that's something you'd like, please leave a comment. Um, all of our episodes also have additional information in the show notes, like the link to the Facebook group, of course, and additional information on mastering, as well as a couple of mastering engineers that I have worked with and who, whom I recommend. It's all in the show notes, so just make sure at the end of the episode to just scroll down and have a quick look over there. Thank you for being on board today. I'll see you again for another episode of the Production Talk podcast next week. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Bye for now.